Well, as we uh, continue into uh, the book of John, which uh, so far I've just been super excited jumping into this uh, with all you guys, uh, and I know there's been a lot of excitement that I've heard from many of you uh, as we've uh, gotten into the first, um, uh, the first uh, chapter of this, uh, we're kind of shifting gears. We had sort of what was called uh, uh, the, the, be- the beginning, the introduction uh, of this uh, story, and uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit, and I want to um, kind of set the story up for all of you. Uh, as we look into this uh, text today. Um, In the history of of God's people, uh, of Israel, they always had prophets. Uh, These prophets would uh, speak the word of the Lord to them, declare God's word to the Jewish people, uh, lead them, guide them, correct them, uh, prepare them for the things that the Lord was doing in their midst. And in this time period uh, in Israel, it had been 400 years since they had a prophet among them speaking God's word and giving this kind of direction. Now, think about it even just uh, in a very, very small way. Uh, I think this is week seven or week eight for us of having not a whole lot of direction from our government and we're getting very frustrated and we're feeling very pent up and very antsy. Think 400 years that God hasn't spoken in this specific way through the prophets to Israel. And they're just sitting there going, What is going on? Where is the Lord? He hasn't spoken in 400 years. And so there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anxiety. You know, they're they're surrounded by this tyrannical government. They're just wondering, where is the Lord in all of this? So this 400-year period is like this, this pregnant pause. They were awaiting, hoping the Lord would speak again through his people. And we see the very last chapter, the last few verses of the Old Testament what uh, the Lord basically signs off and says to be continued. It says in Malachi chapter four, verse five and six, this is the Lord speaking to the people through Malachi. It says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So he says, hey, this isn't it. Speaking through Malachi, that's not it. There's, there's, there's one more that's gonna come. And he, this great prophet, is gonna turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So he's saying there's gonna be one more prophet, one more great prophet that's gonna come before the great day of the Lord. And then 400 years of silence. And they're just sitting, twiddling their thumbs, wondering where is the Lord? And then suddenly, some rumors start to flow. People start hearing of this kind of wild, eccentric guy living out in the middle of nowhere. And he's declaring what he says is the word of the Lord. Not only that, but he's baptizing people in the name of the Lord. But the story that we're going to get into today doesn't even center around the baptism of what you and I think of with water baptism. But the story today, though it mentions that, it focuses around a better baptism, a much greater baptism, a baptism that only God himself can perform. John is gonna tell us today that Jesus, the Lord, he is the one who has this better baptism, that he's the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. And as we dive into the text today, I hope that we even get an understanding of what it means for Christ to truly make us alive, not just the kind of life that we think of, you know, living, breathing, beating hearts, but the kind of life that only God himself can give, making us alive on the inside. 
Life given only by being baptized into the Holy Spirit by God. So let's pray and thank the Lord for his truth this morning as we uh, dive into John chapter 1, verse 15. We're going to be going through uh, 28, uh, just in little bits and pieces as we go through the sermon today. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us the, the great ordinance of, of baptism, but that that only symbolizes a greater baptism. We thank you that uh, you, God, you immerse us in your Holy Spirit. You cover us in yourself, not just in water, but you immerse us in yourself. And you have sent your son to do this very thing for us. What an amazing gift. And we get to read today about the story of how you made this announcement to the world after 400 years of awkward silence. You send your son with this announcement, this proclamation. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, would you put awe in our hearts this morning as we read through these words that they would affect us and change us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter one, verse 15. This is uh, the end of the prologue, of the introduction, uh, but we're gonna start in 15. It says this, John bore witness about him, about Jesus, and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and didn't deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? He said, no, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. And these things, John the author says, took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now the next day, he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. These things, as John says, took place in a place called Bethany across the Jordan. And this was, um, we'll look at uh, some some photos here in a second, but I want to give you some background on John just to kind of give you an idea of where he came from. Now, John's mother, uh, Elizabeth, uh, she's the sister to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so John and Jesus, they're, they're second cousins, born six months apart, Uh, John being six months older. Now, the Gospel of Luke has uh, more thorough background on John. I'd I'd recommend you read through uh, the first couple chapters of Luke just to give you uh, a bigger picture, but I'll give you a couple of the highlights here. Uh, Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah, were older in years. They never had kids due to being barren, and they lived in the hill country of Judea, probably uh, near Bethlehem, uh, in a little town probably called um, Enkarem. We don't know exactly where they live, but uh, some of the historical traditional evidence points to uh, a town called Enkarim, which is only four miles from Bethlehem, which would make sense because they're from the line of David, and uh, David uh, was from Bethlehem, uh, so it makes sense that they were probably within that region. Uh, now, Zechariah was serving as a priest in the temple. Uh, this is in the story uh, that's uh, shown in the Gospel of Luke. One day he was burning incense uh, in the temple, and he had an encounter with uh, the angel Gabriel. Uh, and, and Zechariah was told that he would have a son and that his son would be uh, a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah um, and uh, that he would name his son John and that this prophet, John, would be preparing the way for the Messiah to come, spoken of in uh, Malachi. Now, a bit later, uh, a, uh, that same angel Gabriel visited uh, Elizabeth's younger cousin, Mary, so Elizabeth was much older in age, but Mary was a young gal, a teenager even. And she was told that she would be giving birth to the Savior. And she was also told in that time that her older cousin Elizabeth was pregnant. So when Mary first visited Elizabeth, uh, the word says that when, uh, when John in the womb, a little, little, uh, little baby in the womb, heard the voice of Mary, his, his future uh, cousin, uh, he leapt in his mother's womb. And just then also, the word tells us that the Lord filled Elizabeth with the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I love this. I think that some of you that uh, maybe grew up, uh, you know, you have your siblings who are your first friends in life, but uh, uh, it's kind of commonly said that your cousins are really sort of your, your first close friends that, uh, that you sort of make in life. And there's this kind of cool thing, I think, that um, even the Lord used cousins in this kind of family uh, connection. Uh, that um, even when John, as a baby in the womb, heard his, uh, his, his I don't know, the second cousin, third cousin, whatever that would be, great cousin, uh, Mary's voice, uh, he, he leapt in the womb. Uh, and so these two boys, we presume, had this, this bond growing up, not just with their future connection, but also this familial connection. Now we fast forward. Um, John now is a man living in the Judean wilderness, living on locusts and honey, wearing clothing made of camel hair, very eccentric, very wild. And now we see him at Bethany beyond the Jordan. So uh, I'll show you a map here of the region. Uh, If you look at this map, uh, there's a couple um, little towns highlighted on here. Uh, But you see the the Dead Sea. Now, uh, right to the left of the Dead Sea, you see the Judean wilderness. You can see it's very barren. Uh, It is just, um, it's just desert. 
And then just to the left of the Judean wilderness, you see Jerusalem and Bethlehem. That's the hill country. So the Judean wilderness is quite flat, but then um, right, if you see where it says wilderness lookout, uh, just to the right of that, if you're taking that little highway there, it goes down very steep, uh, about 12 or 1300 foot drop down to the lowest point on earth into the Dead Sea area. Now, some of these pictures I'm going to show you, I, I went through these a couple weeks ago on a night that we uh, spent uh, live streaming looking at some photos of Israel to prepare us for today, but I wanted to show them for those of you who weren't there. Uh, so the next photo, to get, give you a picture of what that Judean wilderness looks like, uh, it looks like this, uh, this panoramic view of just nothing. And um, if you're to look on the top right on the horizon of that desert, you can kind of see a very uh, faded, dim sort of landmass. That's the, the country of Jordan. So um, if you go to the edge of that, and it would just drop down into Jericho uh, and then across the Jordan River and then into the country of Jordan. The next photo gives you a, a bit more of a perspective as you see me and my son Micah uh, walking and looking um, at this, uh, this kind of overlook point. Uh, you see that it's just really an expanse of nothingness. Uh, and this is where uh, John was living. Uh, we don't know how long he was living uh, there, but it says that he came out of the wilderness and he was baptizing and proclaiming the name of the Lord. This is the same wilderness that uh, Jesus later would spend 40 days uh, fasting and praying when he was tempted by Satan. Uh, now the next photo shows my family. Um, uh, they're together, um, and uh, you see my, my family with some head coverings that a little Bedouin boy uh, sold us. Uh, and you see there would be some water sources. You see kind of that little tiny oasis down uh, right above my hat there. Uh, so you could live out here. It just wasn't very fun. Uh, and so going back to the map in the next uh, slide there, uh, I'll show you um, kind of where we're headed. So that little spot where it says uh, Wilderness Lookout, that's where my photos were from. So we were right about there. And as we continue traveling uh, to the east, we're going to be going down that road um, into a valley, and this is the lowest valley on the earth. Now, if you look to the right there, you see that red dot that says baptismal site. Uh, that river that you see sort of to the north, you can't really see it going into the Dead Sea, uh, but that is the Jordan River that uh, today divides Israel to the, to the west and the country of Jordan to the right. Now, that baptismal site is the next page or the next, um, the next photograph here. And you see this, um, if you see where that group of people in white, they're gathering, they're baptizing folks, and you see that rope that goes down the center uh, of, the, of the river, uh, that is the border. So if you cross that rope, which you're not allowed to because there are Israeli soldiers on this side and there's Jordanian soldiers on the other side with big guns to make sure that no one crosses either side, uh, but that's the border going to the other side. Now, uh, the next photo um, uh, shows um, uh, my family, and um, you see on the other side, you see uh, another structure, another building. So that's the Jordanian side there. And um, so truly the uh, other side on uh, the, the east side of the Jordan is where uh, the baptism of Jesus took place. Uh, and this is a, a pretty reliable location. Um, there's uh, been some excavations on the other side that show some ancient places of worship uh, on that side um, of where Bethany uh, used to be. Uh, so this side is obviously uh, it's the Israeli side. Uh, we're not able to cross over, but, uh, but this was uh, the riverbank uh, where uh, the baptism of Jesus took place. Um, but the other side, the Jordanian side, since it's called Bethany on you know, the other side of the Jordan, 
Um, that was the actual location where Jesus was baptized. So what was controversial about John wasn't necessarily his diet or his attire, though that surely didn't help his cause, uh, but it's that baptism uh, wasn't traditionally a part of Old Testament Jewish history. But during this 400 years between the Testaments and having no prophets, uh, this, uh, this ritual, this rite of baptism started to rise in popularity among Gentiles, non-Jews, who would want to follow Yahweh. They want to become converted to, to, to Judaism. So they started being baptized. It was a way for them to show their desire to follow after Yahweh. But yet now, suddenly, John is calling even Jews to be baptized. So, so this guy, he's starting to ruffle some feathers. It's a bit unnerving. Well, well, why do we need to be baptized? We're not Gentiles. We obey God's law. We're God's people. Why are you calling us to repentance and baptism? Now, I remember when I was younger, I remember someone telling me I needed Jesus. I needed to be saved. And I thought, well, what are you talking about? I already believe in God. You know, I've, I've gone to church. I, I believe that Jesus is real. I'm a pretty good person. What do you say? I need, I need Jesus. I need to be born again. I'm already, I'm fine. And so that's kind of what's going on. They're, they're being offended that this guy John is saying, hey, you guys need to repent and be baptized. Well, that's just for Gentiles. That's for the, the bad people. I'm fine. And on top of that, up until this point, people actually would baptize themselves, which is kind of funny because we don't do that, right? So you would baptize yourself. So for a guy like John now to be baptizing people, they're thinking, well, that's pretty presumptuous. Who do you think you are? Baptizing people? What kind of authority do you have? We baptize ourselves, and it's only Gentiles that do that. So he's starting to catch a lot of attention. On top of the fact there hasn't been a prophet for 400 years. So here he is calling even Jews, good, righteous people, God's people, calling them to repent and be baptized, and then he's the one baptizing them as if he's got something special. So they start questioning him. Are you Elijah? Are you the one that Malachi spoke of? He said no. Even though Jesus later would tell his disciples that John indeed was, in a sense, Elijah because he had come in the spirit of Elijah, but John's, he's truthfully answering, no, I'm, I'm not actually Elijah. Well, then are you the prophet? Not a prophet, but the prophet. If you aren't Elijah, who was the, the prophet that was going to come to usher in the Messiah, are you the prophet, the one that he was going to usher in? See, the Jews were waiting for a very special prophet who was like Moses. Moses wasn't just a prophet, but a mediator of the Old Testament. Now, if you look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, when speaking to Moses, here's what God said. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So they're looking for a like majorly capital P prophet, the Messiah. He said, no, I'm not him either. Well, then who are you? Here's what he says in verse 23. I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He says, I'm, I'm the guy spoken of in Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, verse three through five says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. 
The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Prepare the way of the Lord. He quickly refocuses their attention not onto himself but onto Christ. He says, look, I baptize with water but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He says, I can't even untie his foot strap. See, in that day, disciples would do a lot of uh, sort of um, uh, grunt work for their master, but they would never be asked to untie and handle the feet because you'd think of just how dirty shoes are and you know, you've got all kinds of you know, camel mess and all kinds of stuff that they're being, that's uh, being stepped in. Only a slave was low enough to actually be told to handle the, uh, the footwear of masters. Disciples would do a lot of grunt work for their master, but not that. But slaves would be required to stoop that low, get on their hands and feet and untie the feet of their master. But John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. Don't call me even a disciple. Don't even call me a slave. I'm, I'm lower than a slave. I, I'm, I'm low. That's how good this man is. That's how big he is. So we see in verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes the man who ranks before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, of course, it's presumed that these two boys spent a decent amount of time. They didn't live near each other, but they probably saw each other at least annually. They're, they're second cousins. So it's safe to know that you know, John knew Jesus, even though here he says, I didn't know him. So we know that he knew him physically. Most likely, John was told the circumstances of his birth, this angel Gabriel. He probably, probably knew growing up what he was called to do. And most likely, though not necessarily, he was probably also told of his cousin's identity growing up. Though that's not for sure. Maybe he didn't know. Either... Uh, it seems that John, though he knew his cousin, obviously, uh, yet he didn't know him as savior. He didn't know him in that way, either because maybe he wasn't told growing up. Maybe that was kept a secret. We don't know. Or maybe he was told, but he wasn't quite sure. He didn't have yet the eyes of faith. He's watching and observing his cousin, only sees him maybe once a year, and he's going, he's, he's obviously a very righteous man, more righteous than I am, my cousin. But there's always that, that seed of doubt that's in us, especially if we don't have the eyes of faith given by the Lord. Now, John knew there would be a Messiah that he would go before, but we don't know if he knew for sure that it was his cousin growing up. We just, we just don't know. And we see in the other gospels that John even said to Jesus, wait, 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 you want me to baptize you, cousin? You should be baptizing me. Now, maybe it's because he definitely knew by that point that Jesus was the Messiah, or maybe it's just because he knew the integrity and character and commitment to, to the Lord that his cousin had. And he said, no, 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 you're better than me. You should be baptizing me. We don't quite know why he said that, but it was at least one of those two reasons. So John's thinking to himself that his cousin, whether he knew in that moment that this is indeed the Messiah, or if he's just thinking, and cousin, you are so much more righteous than me, you should be baptizing me. But as we look at the role and the purpose and the message of John, we look at it to understand more, not so much about John, but we look at this story to learn more about Jesus. After all, it's Jesus who John the Baptist wanted to magnify. And uh, John the author, 
or I'm sorry, John the Baptist also said in John 3 that he must increase and I must decrease. We know that John the Baptist's desire is to magnify the Lord. So it's noteworthy to us that God's plan for the Messiah would be that this Messiah, this, this capital, super capital P prophet, would spend 30 years in obscurity on this earth. He got to know what it was like being human. He lived every day growing up in Nazareth, a town out in the country in the north, probably only had about 200 residents, eating food, enjoying parties, and the company of people, community, fellowship, working, learning how to be a carpenter. Absolutely nothing extraordinary, quite monotonous. He didn't flaunt his role or his future or his mission or his deity. He's just a regular guy growing up. And maybe this is also in part why John the Baptist, his cousin, was like, I, I know what I was told, but he just seems like a regular guy. He's very righteous, more righteous than me, but he didn't have quite the eyes of faith. Maybe that was part of it because he was so normal, Jesus. There's something specific and important to recognize, this initial anonymity that Jesus lived, the humility of being born in a stable of some sort, to working class parents from a small village, there's a significance of God coming to the earth and living among the faces of everyday first century Jews. He was so plain, so anonymous, so much so that God had ordained this specific event and a specific person in his cousin John to officially reveal, as John uses that word, reveal, the Lamb of God to his people Israel. See, Jesus, though he was this great coming prophet unlike any other prophet, he wasn't Raised in the limelight, like today we have, you know, the, the Hiltons and, uh, you know, uh, we have William and Harry that were raised before our eyes uh, in the line of royalty. None of those people need any kind of introduction. We've, we've watched them be raised among us. But no, God purposed that the Messiah would live these 30 years anonymously until an appointed time. And he purposed that the Messiah would indeed be truly a high priest who could sympathize with us because he grew up just like us. And this is why, in part, why God designed a specific entrance plan so that his people would know that this is the one. So why is this big announcement so focused on in the beginning of the story? And why is this big announcement, this baptism event? Look back in verse 32, John bore witness, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself didn't know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So God the Father spoke to John the Baptist and said, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. It seems as though that this is when John the Baptist recognizes, possibly for the first time, whoa, it's my cousin, he's the one. He is indeed the one. Maybe his parents told him growing up, but he wasn't quite sure. Whatever the case may be, he's going, this is the one. He sees the spirit descend like a dove upon his cousin. And John says, and I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the son of God. John the Baptist, the second cousin of Jesus, recognizes this. He says, I bear witness, this is the son of God. Now a dove, interestingly, was given as a, an option for the poor who couldn't afford a lamb for sacrifice. If you couldn't, for a lamb, you were allowed to buy a dove to offer as a sacrifice. It's very possible this 
symbol of the Holy Spirit being a dove descending from heaven. Could be symbolic maybe of this lowly, humble savior coming to the least and the last and the lost, the poor and the lowly. The Spirit himself displaying his own humility. And the Spirit himself displays even his humility differently than the Father and the Son do. Because it's his role even to magnify and glorify and put forward the Father and the Son. Not put forward himself, but put forth the Father and the Son. And so there's a significant image we see here. The humble but powerful Holy Spirit has come upon the Savior in the image like a dove. And this Spirit didn't just visit Jesus, but he rested upon him. And John says, he is the one. This one, this is, the, this is the capital, capital P prophet we've been waiting for. This is the one who is the, who is the mediator of this new covenant. He's the one who baptizes us in that very spirit that just descended upon him. And John makes it clear, I only baptize in water. It's symbolic of something, but Jesus is the one who actually baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. And to give you just a couple sort of simple examples of this, uh, I've said this to, to people over the years that I've, officiated a wedding, uh, I, don't, I don't marry people. I, don't, I have no power to make two people become one. That's something God does. All I do is I'm, I'm the MC for a public party. That's all I do. I'm an officiant. Uh, I, I come together and I just kind of, I'm, I'm sort of the host of a party, but God is the one who marries people, not me. Uh, I might immerse people in water, uh, but only Jesus is the one who actually baptizes them and makes them born again and baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. I might preach the word, but it's Jesus who is the word. So, so us, we're just, we're just vehicles. And so that's what John is saying. I'm just a vehicle. You know, you and I, when we, when we pray for the people in our lives, when we share the gospel, we don't lead people to Christ, truly. God's word says it's the Father who draws them to him. But we're just, we're the vehicles. Jesus is the one with the authority. It is his ministry. Isaiah chapter 11, verse one and two says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse's the father of David. Okay, so we have the, the stump of Jesse. There's gonna be a little shoot that comes out, a little, little twig that grows out of the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots, from Jesse's roots, David's roots, will bear fruit so this is saying that there's gonna be a man coming from this line of Jesse and David and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And in Jesus' first recorded sermon and also one of the shortest recorded sermons in the history of sermons, he reads a sentence out of Isaiah and then he sits down. It's like his mic drop moments that actually almost got him killed because the people ran him out of town and wanted to throw him over a cliff after he said this because it was considered blasphemous. They knew what he was saying. Here's what he says in Luke chapter four, verse 18. Picture him in a synagogue, a little synagogue with some people sitting around listening. He's at this little stone table opening up the scrolls that they would read from. He opens up and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight of, to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. 
and the eyes of all the, in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now at this point, they could just say, oh, yes and amen, brother. What a great set of scriptures. But then he said, today, this scripture's been fulfilled. And they're going, whoa, what did you just say? You just said that you are that capital, capital P prophet, the one sent from God to do this very thing. They ran him out and they tried to throw him over a cliff. He escaped, but that was, that was his first sermon that we know of. So you guys, right, Casey, Tyler, hey, we haven't ran you out of town yet, so so far so good. But additionally, in the Old Testament, the Spirit was promised not just to Jesus and rest upon him, but to all. Not just to the prophets, not just even to the Messiah, but to all God's people. And not just to a specially chosen anointed people, but all God's people. In Joel chapter two, verse 28 and 29, it says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So here we have this incredible event, the baptism of Jesus, where the spirit comes upon him, fulfilling the prophecies in Isaiah. He becomes the only way we receive the spirit. And then... He is then the one that John says who immerses us in the Holy Spirit. He's the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. We are swallowed up in the Spirit. Just as we are in water through John's baptism, the baptism that we do in our church, it is also so with the Spirit because of Christ and his authority. He doesn't just immerse us and cover us in water We do that symbolically. John was doing that symbolically, but Jesus is the one who truly baptizes and immerses us in the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free and all were made to drink of one spirit. John here is speaking of our need for Jesus to baptize us by his power and his authority and for his purpose. But church, the purpose is not just so that we would be made alive. It's also that through this very baptism, this baptism into one body, which is his body, we would also with him and through him, we would now become ministers of the Holy Spirit. That we would not just receive but we'd also give. John chapter seven, verse 38, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what are these rivers of living water? Well, John tells us in verse 39, this he said about the spirit. So let's reread that. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of the living water of the Holy Spirit. It'll come out of his heart, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So this is before this had been poured out upon the church, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. To church, the Holy Spirit is given not just to flow into us, but to flow out from us. Those who have been given the Spirit, every single born-again believer, everyone who's been adopted by God the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, who has been immersed in the Spirit. The Spirit now flows from your heart. 
Not in a way that we wield like it's, you know, at our own discretion and power, as if we're in control of the Spirit, commanding the Spirit where to go. Not in that way. But as we are immersed, we are enlivened and we will now overflow because we have been filled. We've been immersed. We've been baptized. Our words now will become words of life. Our actions will become acts of grace. Our attitudes will be mirrors of Christ as we are continually conformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And now, on this side of the cross and the glorification of Christ, the lowly, the foolish things of the world are used by God to be ministers of reconciliation. That's what we're called. We're ambassadors for Christ, overflowing with the Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit, vessels of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're vehicles of the Holy Spirit speaking words of life, magnifying the Father and the Son. Now, I know that many of you don't feel like this describes you at all. I know many of you are feeling like, I don't feel at all filled by the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I've been immersed in the Holy Spirit. And it's true. You, you might be able to look at your life and say, out of my heart comes something, but it ain't the Holy Spirit. You might be looking at your life, your thoughts, your words, and you can't, you can't look at those words of Jesus and say, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You might look at your life and say, I don't, I don't feel like I'm overflowing. I'm overflowing, but it's nothing good. You might look at your life and say, I don't know about you know, rivers of living water, maybe a trickle here and there on a good day. Church, you have to know, yes, it is totally possible for believers filled with the Spirit to also quench the Holy Spirit. We know that that's possible. We know it's possible for us to, 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 to dam up the, the rivers of living water by our own sin, our own rebellion, our own selfishness, or any number of things. So if I'm describing this and you're sitting there feeling condemned and feeling shameful, please don't. Let this maybe be a bit of a, um, an exhortation, maybe a wake-up call or something, but don't feel that condemnation because we know that even believers, we can quench the Holy Spirit. But there's good news for us today because another one of the great benefits of Jesus baptizing you in the Holy Spirit is that one purpose of this and one of the Holy Spirit's roles is to keep you alive. Even when you are quenching him, one of his roles is to keep your spirit alive. He will not die inside of you. He can't die inside of you. You quench him. You, you maybe turn your, your, your back on him. You do all these things, but he can't die inside you. One of his roles is to keep you alive, even when your flesh is failing. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says, In him... In God, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him, you believed in Jesus. Guess what, church? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is, here's a, if, if the word sealed isn't big enough for you, here's a better word for you. Who is the guarantee, the guarantee. The strength of your faith is not the guarantee. The feelings you have and, and how good you feel like you're having a good day, that's not the guarantee. No, you are sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's the guarantee of your future that you're gonna receive because of Christ. 
He's the guarantee, not just for that future, but until, even now, today, he's your guarantee. Until that day comes, he's the guarantee until we acquire possession of it. See, right now, you don't have that inheritance. You don't have this great and perfect life where you're free from sin. That's the inheritance that's later. But until that day, you have a guarantee that you're gonna get that. And it's not anything that you do. You go into Ephesians chapter two, we see that it's nothing of ourselves. No, but we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been immersed in the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, covered in the Spirit. He is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of that inheritance to the praise of his glory. This church is good news for us. This is good news for us. He, the Holy Spirit, who you've been baptized into, he's the one who keeps you above the floodwaters of sin and death. When your flesh is failing, when the world around you is falling apart, when your inside feels like it's falling apart, the Holy Spirit's role and job is to keep you above the floodwaters, and he is. You might not feel like it. You might not think he's doing it. Maybe he's not doing it the way you'd want him to, but he's doing it. He promised that he would do it. And he can't, he can't break his promise. This is God's grace in your life. This is his guarantee in your life. John 14, verse 26, Jesus says, but the helper, that's one of his job descriptions. His title is the helper. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, in Jesus' name, he, this helper, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. When you're in that place of despair, you don't know what's going on. The Holy Spirit, who's maybe just, you know, not barely alive, he's fully alive inside you, but you're quenching him. But he's still able to bring to mind when you're in those places of desperation, he's able to give you that oxygen to keep you alive. A chapter later in John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit will, part of how he keeps you alive is that even when you get so despaired and even doubting, is God real, is this real? That spirit is in you saying, yes, he is. He's bearing witness about the work that Christ has done in you. And you can doubt and you can go through. I'm gonna give you a little preview real quick. I just, I just have to say this. In just a couple chapters, even John the Baptist starts to doubt whether Jesus is the Messiah. Even after the declaration we're reading today, John the Baptist doubts. So, so that, that's, that's kind of good and bad news for us, right? It's good news because we go, okay, even John the Baptist who, who saw the dove come out of the sky, he even doubts. So if even John doubts, then that means, what, what about us? Are we gonna doubt? Yeah, we're gonna doubt. But the Spirit bears witness about Christ even when we are doubting. There's that little part of that trickle of those, that living water that says, yes, he's real. Yes, you're his. You don't feel like it. You don't look like it, but you're his. This is what the Spirit does. You're gonna quench the Holy Spirit times in your life. And you're gonna feel as though you're walking in darkness. But my guess is that even for some of your darkest places, I think that you can still, in the depths of your heart, you can still say, Jesus is the Lord. You might doubt some of his lordship and the way he does things and how he's in control, but something deep down inside you, and that's the Holy Spirit bearing witness. You can still say, I know he's the Lord. I just don't get him. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, therefore I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. So if even in the darkest parts of your life you're still able to see that little glimmer of light, that little trickle of living water and you're still able to say, but I, I know he's the Lord. Well, according to Paul, you can only say that because the spirit's living inside of you. You're not able to actually curse him. Maybe you're mad at him. You might be angry at him. All kinds of other things. You're quenching the Holy Spirit left and right. But somehow you just can't seem to curse him. Somehow you can't seem to curse Jesus because the Spirit's actually inside of you. Because the Savior baptized you into his body by his Spirit, the Spirit who was revealed in the image of a poor man's dove. So when you're poor in spirit, remember that the Holy Spirit is this lowly, humble person of the Trinity who has come to bear witness and point you to the Savior. So for this morning, for those of you, maybe you're listening and you, you're not quite sure. I'm a, I'm a good person. I believe generally in God. I, I grew up going to church. Um, I'm just not sure if I'm, I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't know if I have the Spirit living and dwelling inside me. Uh, I don't know if I, I mean, you're talking about repenting and being baptized, and yeah, I'm, I don't know that I need that. I, I want you to be reminded that even God's own people, his own people, the Jews, needed not just to be baptized with water, and they didn't just to need to do good deeds, but they needed to be born again on the inside, made alive on the inside. And that's something that only Jesus can do for you. It's not something you can do or conjure up by your own righteousness or religious works or you know, how you were raised when you were a kid, nothing like that. This is something that only Jesus can do. Only he can immerse you in the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And if you aren't sure that that is you, I would implore you to consider what this, is, what this means for you. And if you're realizing, you know, I, I don't know, and if, I, if you have questions, I, I'd love for you to reach out to us. Reach out to me. Uh, I'd love to chat with you. Uh, or if you're just not sure, if you've got questions, or maybe you've got, um, you know, um, doubts, things like that. Uh, I, I love good conversation. And I love hearing those different things that people wrestle with. So I would, I would love to talk to, with you about that. For the believers, there is, even for believers, there is repentance needed for us. Almost all of us, I'll say all of us, in some form or fashion, we're quenching the Holy Spirit in our life. Maybe it's a certain area, or maybe it's across the board in your life. You're quenching your trust in the Spirit's work, his sanctifying work, questioning whether Jesus really baptized you into his life, or whatever it might be. I know that there are struggles that every believer has. And the beginning step for you is just to, uh, to recognize that and say, Lord, help me believe. Your repentance, the turning of your heart has to start with belief. Help me believe that you've baptized me into the Holy Spirit, into one body, that I am yours. Help me hear the, the bearing of witness of Christ in my life. That that little spark, that little trickle of water would just expand and grow and all of a sudden the dam would just open up and break. But start with that acknowledgement that there is something to be repented of. There's a quenching of the Spirit. And church, 
for all of us, remember that we're called to be ministers of reconciliation. We've been saved to be sent. Uh, I'll close with a couple scriptures here, um, and then I'll pray. In John chapter 20, you notice, I'm, I'm quoting a lot from John. This is going to be such an amazing next year or two going through John. I mean, all these scriptures are just unbelievable. John chapter 20, verse 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, on the first day of the week, this is after Jesus died, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. They were hiding. They were scared. Their Savior, the capital P, capital, capital P prophet just got killed. They're going, uh-oh, we're next. They're hiding in fear. The doors were locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and just stood among them all of a sudden, appeared there and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And at that point, he breathed the Holy Spirit upon them. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came, this is even later after John 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So church, now even as we go into our life, we don't just receive the Holy Spirit, but now we go in the authority of Christ himself and we baptize, and we teach people, we disciple people. We don't live in fear, hiding ourselves, but we, but we receive the Holy Spirit from Christ himself. He gives us his peace, he gives us his spirit, and he says, now go, therefore, baptize and make disciples. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great work of Jesus coming to this earth, living in anonymity, obscurity, humbly. But that he came to baptize us into his own body. To cause us to become one with him through the Spirit. And this is something that only he can do. This isn't something we do. This isn't something that pastors do. This is something that Jesus alone does. Immerses us in the Holy Spirit. Seals us for the day of redemption. I thank you, Lord, that my inheritance is secure. That it's kept in heaven for me. And until that day, I have the guarantee of the Holy Spirit upon my life. What an amazing, amazing gift. Lord, I pray that that truth alone would cause the trickle of the Holy Spirit in many believers' lives to expand and become a stream. For so many that feel like they're trickling at best, that from their hearts would be torrents of living water. Awaken us. Immerse us, Lord. Help us to overflow. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.